Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. We know that the COVID-19 pandemic has had a devastating impact on the income of performing artists. Unemployment has been staggering as theaters, concert halls, and clubs shut down because social distancing was impossible. Well, things seem to be improving now that many Americans are vaccinated and some live performances are resuming. Here in Atlanta, jazz artist Joe Granston and his big band will perform together for the first time in over a year. Later this hour, we'll hear some of the great songs and talk about the joy of reuniting musicians with a live audience. First, a visit to Silicon Valley by way of the Alliance Theater. Nurturing talent and welcoming new stage works were reasons Susan Booth, the Alliance Theater Artistic Director, created the Alliance Candida National Graduate Playwriting Competition. The contest transitioned student playwrights to the world of professional theater. The winning play this year is Data by Matthew Libby and directed by Susan Booth. They're with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hi. Thank you, Lois. Matthew, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> what is the story of Data? Data is a, is a play set at a, a Silicon Valley data mining software company called Athena Technologies. And it, it's, it's born out of my personal experience in the world of Silicon Valley and it follows a young entry-level employee as he slowly kind of becomes aware of the true nature of his company's work. And it takes him kind of on a journey of self-discovery, forcing him to ask questions about himself and his own identity in the face of this kind of new knowledge that he's uncovered about the true nature of the company's work. Are there any real-life figures in tech right now who inspired any of the characters? Oh, Susan, I hear you laughing. Well, what I'll say is that the, the play first started coming to me. I just remember the day. It was early April of 2018 because it was the day that Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, was testifying in front of the Senate for the first time about Facebook's connection to Cambridge Analytica. 
it was kind of watching Zuckerberg evading a lot of those questions and the kind of difficulty of getting a straight answer out of him that started circulating a lot of questions in my in my mind about this industry and its and its priorities and its values. And I have personal experience with you know, having lived in Silicon Valley for many years during during my undergrad years. So yeah, it's, it's definitely an amalgamation of the way that on the highest levels we we look at and question the people who run this industry. The way I like to put it is that everyone in the play is really an amalgamation of of both kind of archetypes of this world and personalities that I know. It's very little one-to-one correlation, but um, <laughs> definitely took a lot of experience from both the kind of public presentation of this world, in, you know, in the case of the Zuckerberg hearings, and also my personal experience having lived there. I loved the HBO series, Silicon Valley, and also loved following press items about it, um, interviews and stories that suggested... It really wasn't as much satire (laughs) as we were led to believe, and certainly from the laughter we had. Was that your experience as well? I've thought about this a lot just because I love that show as well. And and a lot of the stuff that comes comes out in popular culture about Silicon Valley as an industry is either satire like that, which, yes, is shockingly close to how the industry actually kind of functions and talks about itself. But, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you get this kind of heightened satire. On the other end of the spectrum, you get stuff like cerebral sci-fi. You know, I'm thinking of a, a show called Devs, which, which I also really loved. But my experience of Silicon Valley as a culture and as an industry is really neither of those things at the end of the day. I do think the satire of a show like Silicon Valley is pretty spot on, but my experience of that world is on a day-to-day level was never active satire or this kind of cerebral sci-fi. My experience of that world was always something a, a little bit more grounded. It was definitely something that I was consciously trying to do with the play is give a a presentation or a peek inside Silicon Valley that is not kind of overtly comedic or too intellectually heady, but is instead, you know, a kind of on the ground moment to moment reality of what it's like to be a young person in that world. You mentioned the character Manish, played by the actor Cheech Manahar. And Manish goes through a crisis of conscience. He has to come to terms with his American identity. How does his cultural background play into his role in tech? When I was first thinking about this, despite Mark Zuckerberg and archetypes like that kind of launching my interest in in telling a story like this, the thing I, I didn't really want to do was do another story that looks at Silicon Valley from Um, the same Zuckerberg-esque archetype of a headstrong young white man, that kind of archetype that has become very mythologized within Silicon Valley. And I knew that I wanted to look at the world from a not that archetype's point of view. I mean, that that archetype does make its way into the play in, in the face of Jonah, the character of Jonah. But by not centering him, hopefully that archetype gets examined a little bit more than if it would be if it was at the center. For me, the way I, I was thinking about this was, in a world of data analytics at a company like Athena, the goal of these companies is to try to take a mess of data, a mess of information, and tell some sort of linear story out of it. There is kind of an ethos at these companies that you can take chaos and turn it into some narrative or some kind of compelling story. And it became clear to me that the the kind of character who would be most challenged by that world is a character who does not know who he is, who has a kind of mess of of information in himself and is unable to parse through that information, is unable to come to some sort of consistent story about himself. The world of Silicon Valley is 
if you kind of look away from the archetype of characters who who kind of rule a lot of stories about Silicon Valley as being these kind of self-assured, headstrong young men, there are many people who work in this industry who are not kind of centered in those stories. And I think Manish, it was my attempt to both from a personal level, a societal level and a character level, give him as many things to have to kind of work through over the course of the story. So what is uniquely American in tech and digital life? There is something about the tech industry that combines a couple of uniquely American ideals. One is this idea of the cowboy figure, the kind of, I can do it alone. I can code this entire project by myself and be the face of a company and lead a very kind of headstrong public life, a kind of individualistic attitude. But at the same time, there's also major communal inclinations as well, you know, real kind of company ethos. You know, I think of people at Google are called Googlers. Facebook employees celebrate their face anniversary, and there's this kind of encouraged <laughs> connection between individual identity and company identity. So you have this individualistic mindset and the kind of people that get championed with Silicon Valley are the kind of people who can go at it alone and tell that story about themselves. But then you also have this communal ethos of we all have to be in this together, which strikes me as a kind of uniquely American cognitive dissonance. It makes me think that Silicon Valley is a really interesting way to kind of probe some modern American sentiment. Susan, as stage director for Data, and the artistic director for the Alliance Theater, you were part of the oversight for the playwriting competition in which Data emerged the winner. What makes this play the winner? You know, it's interesting. Every year I have a panel of national judges and we send them the five finalist plays and then we, we gather as a panel. And there's seldom consensus amongst the judging panel, and there was a real dynamic sense of consensus with Matt's play, which I was particularly glad about because this thing had already happened to me. I read a lot of plays, and I'm typically reading them, thinking about Atlanta, thinking about the Alliance, thinking about national conversations. But once in a while, I'll be reading a play, and I start to hear cadences. I start to hear which voices centered in a conversation, I start to hear the rhythms and specific tones of dialogue. And when that happens, I know that I'm getting smitten as a director. And that had happened with this play. And I thought, oh, golly, I hope it wins. Um, (laughs) So the thing that I find remarkable about this piece is the entire time that we worked on it, from jump, from sitting down with Matt for the first time on my very last trip to New York, February of 2020, through this editing process that we've just completed on the work. Every day that I've worked on this play, there's been a story either in the business section, in the op-ed, the deals with the invasion and profound possibility of data in our life, right? There'll be a story about the ethics of data analysis. There'll be a story about an advertising guru who is mining all of our data in new and provocative ways. It is a story that is constant. And while There are a whole lot of good polemics out there in the world in the form of plays. 
what I love about this piece is it never, what would we say ascends or descends to <laughs> merely polemic. It is also a pot boiler. It is a what's going to happen next page turner of a read and eyeball attractor of a play. Wow. There are many interesting ways this production and the experience of viewing it work around COVID restrictions. <laughs> Would you tell us how those technologies oh, facilitate Lois, this? It was so weird. It was so weird. And and I want there to be a, a banner across the finished product that says, this was not filmed as a movie. And the reason I want that is because the amount of technology, perfect for this play, the amount of technology and editing skill and photography skill and COVID protocol that all went into the stew to create the finished product is extraordinary. What you will see as a viewer when you stream data are four characters who are often sharing intimate spaces, a break room, a conference room, playing ping pong together. We filmed the entirety of this piece in a green screen studio at Georgia State University's Creative Media Enterprises Institute. Hmm. We had actors beyond socially distanced, many, many feet apart from one another, sitting at a single chair with a single table with a tiny collection of hand props, all sanitized constantly as the days went on, and took that footage, composited actors into digitally created environments. And I look at the finished product, Lois, and I think, oh, we, we must have filmed that, right? Because you can't possibly imagine that those four people sitting in opposite four corners of a giant green studio could possibly look so plausibly comfortably situated a foot and a half away from each other in digitally created environments. It was really cool. Oh, it sounds it. Matthew, would you talk about the irony of viewers watching data online, the virtual experience? It's weirdly kind of perfect, right? Uh, it's, yeah. it's, uh, the play was selected for this award pre-COVID and, you know, we had discussed many different ways to present it. And I think we've all kind of come to this place of like this kind of weird cosmic thing going on where if any play had to be presented in this format, I think this play can actually really gain something from being presented in this way. This is a story about what's innately human in an increasingly technological world. And I think it only makes sense that people are going to have their own kind of human experiences with it through this technological medium. The play is kind of broken up by these private interstitial scenes that happen periodically throughout the show. And there's something about privacy and, and the kind of private experiences of the characters that was always important to me when I was thinking about this on stage. And now the fact that audiences also are going to be having that same private experience. And, you know, it's actually kind of an exciting way of presenting it. The in-person theater lobby experience for Data's audience has been replaced by something called Subsume. What's Subsume? Subsume is a digital launching platform where, as opposed to 
walking down the stairs to the Hertz Theater lobby, before the performance begins, when you purchase your ticket, you'll be given a link and you'll go to a virtual lobby where you will adopt an avatar who will be your presence in the lobby. And the lobby is set up as if it is the orientation for new employees of Athena technology. There's reference in the play to people socializing at these new employee gatherings. And so we thought, well, how cool if we could engage the audience in a couple of ways. One is, Lois, your avatar can go in and you'll you'll be asked to fill out a new employee questionnaire, <laughs> which you might find ever so slightly invasive. And that's purposeful because later in the play, it will be revealed to you why somewhat invasive questions might have been asked of you. But you'll also have an opportunity to get to know your fellow employees in a social way. There is a dance floor that your avatar can have some fun on. There's concessions. There's a a short video that you can watch from the CEO of the company talking about Athena technology. There are little gathering spots where if your avatar and Matthew's avatar join together in that space, your human voices will talk in real time. You can get to know one another. Hey, what brought you to the play tonight? Wow. And eventually it will be time for the performance to begin and you will go into another section of this virtual lobby, at which point the story will begin. It's so wicked cool. <laughs> it, it is a framework for this piece that we thought just would be that one extra bonus experience for the technologically curious. Who came up with it? There is this brilliant, brilliant human, Brennan Dicker, who runs the Creative Media Institute at GSU, who we reached out to early on as we were conceptualizing this way of doing the play. And Brennan introduced us to Dedrin Sneed, who is the CEO of Subsume, who worked with us to create this bespoke virtual lobby. We have been so exquisitely partnered by GSU and the folks at the Institute all the way through this process, folks who are absolute virtuosos in the digital and virtual world who said, we think this theater thing is cool. Let's figure out a way to tell a story together that works for both of our mediums. Oh, wow. This is putting the steam in STEM, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is where it has always belonged. <laughs> Would you tell us a bit about the four competition finalist plays that will be featured in the Alliance's Festival of New Works? So typically in a live season, the week of previews for our winning play, we also have readings from our four finalists. And in the world of all things digital, we will be having that opportunity, but we'll be having it via Zoom. And all of this information is available on our website. But the four plays that were finalists, a piece called Mother of Exiles by Jessica Huang out of Juilliard. It's a story about creating family and it jumps between 1898 California, 1998 Miami and 2063, oh. somewhere on the ocean. 
Then we have The Singularity Play by Jay Stoll out of Columbia. This is, and this is perfect as a companion piece for data, in an unused room at the Google offices in Manhattan, a theater troupe has gathered to rehearse a new play written by an AI device <laughs> named Denise. Then we have Harper's Ferry 2019 by Kayla Mason Garvin out of Indiana University, which is set at the Harper's Ferry National Park. And it is a group of park rangers who gather to do an enactment of John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. But because of contemporary placement, race and politics explode that narrative. And the last one is 2020, a going away party play by Kiana Katobu out of Northwestern. And this is a story about a first generation Iranian American who is throwing a party for her friends, for you, for the audience. It bounces back and forth between Mina, our hero story, and the story of her parents falling in love and staying in love while fleeing the Iranian revolution. These plays are gorgeously, literally all over the map. They are deeply American stories in that sense of America being the most pluralistic experience you can imagine. I'm blown away. Susan Booth, thank you so very much. Matthew Libby, again, congratulations. And I know we'll be hearing more from you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lois. Susan V. Booth, Artistic Director of the Alliance Theater with playwright Matthew Libby. His play, Data, will be available to stream tonight through May 23rd. The Alliance will also host a Zoom version of its Festival of New Works from May 16th through 21st. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. The COVID-19 pandemic has had a devastating impact on the income of performing artists. Unemployment has been staggering as theaters, concert halls, and clubs shut down because social distancing was impossible. Things seem to be improving now that many Americans are vaccinated and some live performances are resuming. Joe Granston and his big band will perform together for the first time in a year. And he's with us now via Zoom. Joe, welcome back to City Lights. 
Hey, Lois, how are you? I'm so happy to be with you. Well, delighted to be with you, although I realized, as I said, welcome back to City Lights. You are with us every day on City Lights as your original music and your playing introduce and close our show. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's my song entitled The First Time. That, you know, that's one of the first songs I ever uh, composed. And I loved it. Yeah, I was so happy that you enjoyed it and that the, the folks there liked it. And I've gotten so many compliments. You have so many listeners and so many followers that it's really helped my career out. So, so thank you for playing that every day. Oh, wow. You said it was one of the first songs you wrote? Yes, yes. It's one of the first uh, melodies that, that I, I composed once I became a you know a professional musician and decided to do this for a living. I, I remember sitting down at the piano and I don't really have good piano chops, but I can play a little bit, just enough to, you know, play some chords and play a melody. And I was trying to come up with uh, with kind of a, a, a memorable melody, but something that would sound good with trumpet and tenor saxophone. And um, this melody came out pretty quick, the beginning of the song. And then once we got to the, the bridge part of the, the song, that took me a little while. I, I, I kind of chilled on that for probably a good solid two or three weeks till I found the right way to, to get that bridge happening. But that initial melody, you know, and it goes down in half steps, right? It's yes. pretty quick. And, and I, I was kind of proud of that. And that was one of the first songs that's years ago. And I haven't written those since. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, whoa. Well, how privileged are we? We still feel privileged. It is an earworm, which is the highest compliment to a melody. It, it just replays in your mind's ear, and we're delighted to have it. I have to say that thinking about the name of that song, the first time, has added meaning now because for the first time in a year, you will be back with your 17-piece orchestra this coming weekend. How did you know it was time? Oh, boy. That's a, that's a great question. It, it, it has been so long since we, we've actually performed together. A year for sure. And it's just been a horrible year, as we all know. And I just saw people getting vaccinated and, and numbers going down and, and restrictions being lifted on some level. And this was about a month and a half ago where myself and the fellow that owns uh, Oak Street Bottle Shop, my good friend Scott Parr, we, we discussed it and uh, we picked this date. We thought this would be the, a great way to kind of open back up safely. Of course, we're going to be outside. Uh, we made sure of that and we're going to be spaced out as best we can. So we thought that we thought that this was the way to go. And, and let's 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 get back on track here if we can do it safely. Now, you cannot play a trumpet with a shield over your face. Will you be shielded at all when you sing? No, no, I won't be. I've been fully vaccinated. But the band and I will be set up in such a way that the, uh, the first VIP tables will be probably 20 feet away from us. And when I sing, the band is behind me, so I'm not kind of singing at them, if that makes sense. And uh, so we, we, we think we're going to be 
super, super safe. We've been playing these outdoor shows at this venue throughout the year, the, the pandemic, minus a couple months when nobody was allowed really to do anything. And we've really, really been able to space out. That was with my four and five piece band. But now with the big band, we, I'm going to get there early that day. We've already kind of mapped out how we're going to set it up and, and uh, we promise to be safe. Joe, let's talk about the big band. It's a genre of music. And some listeners may not be familiar with what is unique to a big band. How would you describe it? I would describe the big band sound as just this blissful noise. (laughs) (laughs) The sound of swing, the sound of the horns, multiple horns, trumpets, trombones, saxophones with this wonderful rhythm section. It's, it's, it's dance music. It was the most famous dance music in the world in the 1930s and 40s. When you think of big band music, you might think of Duke Ellington and Count Basie and Glenn Miller and Tommy Dorsey. And that is certainly the pinnacle of big band music and where it all started. But big band music today, you could be playing rock and roll songs arranged for a big band. So there's, there's all different ways that a big band uh, branches out these days. My particular band stays kind of true to the uh, tradition of the music. We love the sound of the old swing tunes. However, we've taken those songs, as well as some new songs that we've written, and we've rearranged them to give them a fresh sound. And that's all uh, because of my good friend, Wes Funderburk, who arranges the music for the band, as well as Mike Walton and Marla Feeney and Jeff Jarvis. They take these old songs and they kind of fit them to fit myself and my voice and where my voice uh, works best and where my trumpet works best. So it's a fresh take on that that great old sound from the the early 1900s, I guess. I know that you found your voice, if you will, through listening to Frank Sinatra in particular, and you recorded a tribute to Sinatra. Would you talk about finding yourself and your voice on both the literal and metaphorical level through listening to Sinatra? Yes, I I have to admit that it it took me a long time to find my voice, to find my sound as a uh, a jazz musician, whether I was singing or or playing the trumpet. And I remember hearing Miles Davis in an interview. He he said um, one of his quotes was, "Sometimes it takes a long time to learn how to play like yourself," and that meant a lot to me because uh, some artists find their voice very early on, uh, like Roy Hargrove on trumpet. Uh, one great instance where he just came out at 20-something years old and, and sounded like Roy and sounded like that his entire career. I went through so many different phases. I was in love with Chet Baker's music and Chet Baker's voice and his trumpet playing. I loved Miles. I wanted to sound just like Miles. I loved Mel Torme and Nat King Cole. So I would take these artists and I would try to copy them. And in, in this style of music, jazz, there's nothing wrong with that. That's how we learn. We learn from our, our heroes that came before us. But eventually, you hope that um, all those different influences, all those different sounds enter your, enter your head and, and, and your heart and your soul and your own voice comes out. Well, it took me probably till I was in my early 30s before I stood up on stage and, and, or recorded an album and felt like that's me. That's what I have to offer. It was depressing at some point, you know, in my 20s. When am I going to sound like Joe? Why do I, why do I, why do I sound like a, a, not a good version of Chip Baker? Why do I? sound like not a good version of Frank Sinatra. Well, first of all, 
those guys are the greatest. Second of all, that's not my sound. So it, it did take a long time for me. And now that I have my sound and, and I can relate to that sound and I know what it's going to be, it brings me a lot of confidence and a lot of joy on stage. My father used to always tell me, my father's a great performer, by the way, a great piano player and singer. And he always used to tell me before I go on stage, he'd say, Joe, just go out there and be yourself. There's nothing else you can do. Just be yourself. And so that was my, the thing I would say right before I would cross the, the line that, that, um, that performers make for themselves backstage. As soon as I cross that line, I'm an entertainer. And I used to say, my dad's quote, just be yourself. And that would take all the fear away. Um, and and uh, now that I have that voice, I can really kind of hone in on that, you know. Well, let's listen to an example of how your intrinsic voice comes through in a song made famous by Frank Sinatra. Well, I've loved, laughed and cried. I've had my fill and my share of losing. And now, as tears subside, I find it all so amusing. Just to think I did all that, and may I say, not in a shy way. Oh, no, oh, no, not me. I did it my way For what is a man And what has he got If not himself Then he has not To say the things He truly feels And now the world Someone who was really special to record that song. That's kind of Frank Sinatra's, uh, you know, one of his biggest hits. And anybody that tries to tackle that song, I guess you could say is a little bit crazy. But but I I had a special reason for, for recording that song. There was a, a gentleman for many, many years that would come out to hear us play. He would always request that song. And he was such a good friend of ours for so long. And gosh, I think about Four years ago, he was in his mid-90s and he was still coming out and dancing and he would always have a, a beautiful woman with him and they would dance the night away. And um, fortunately, he had passed suddenly right during the recording of this record. And uh, we had some extra time to record an extra song and that was his favorite. And I said, you know what? We're going to do my way for my friend. This is my friend, Bob, man. Just is such a great guy. His name is Bob Lang and he was one of my favorite people. So uh we did, we, we put it on the record. If you have the record, if you have the recording, you can see that it's a dedication to Bob Lang. But now we do it in most of our shows. It's a beautiful song. It is, and you really bring it home, Joe. Now, another Sinatra song I see that will be on this weekend's concerts is a bit more upbeat. That's life. <laughs> Well, I tell you, that's life. That's life. 
That's what all the people say You're riding high in April Then you shot down in May But I know I'm gonna change that tune When I'm back on top Back on top in June I said that's life And funny as it may seem It's impossible not to feel exhilarated from this song. What impact does it have on you as you're performing it? First of all, it's um, so well known, especially for the crowd that that, that um, loves this music and comes out to hear us all the time. So I always have the crowd sing like the background parts. So I'll sing, uh, you know, well, you know, that's life. And then I'll put my hands out and the crowd goes, that's life, you know just like the recording. So I have a little fun with the audience on this song, but I just think it's a, like you mentioned, an upbeat song. It, it, the arrangement is absolutely perfect. So so the horns and all the parts of the, of, of the arrangement come together perfectly with the vocals. The lyrics say a lot. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of those like perfect songs. Every, it has everything that you want and it's really fun to do towards the end of the night. Um, I, I'd be honest with you, it's, it's a little tough on the voice because um, you don't really get a break. There's not really a, a band shout chorus in this song. And in fact, that bridge that you mentioned, you, you have to sing that twice and then you have to modulate up a half step and sing the end of the song a little higher. So it's it's it can be a little stressful, but boy, it is fun. And it's fun to see the crowd's reaction. Shaking this July. I'm gonna roll myself up in a big bowl. artist Joe Granston. We'll be back with more of our conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with jazz artist Joe Granston. He'll perform live concerts this weekend with his big band, the first time in over a year. Here, Joe talks about his rendition of the song, My Blue Heaven. I have this wonderful relationship with Wes Funderburg, our lead trombone player and our arranger. And when I decided to record My Blue Heaven, I, I wanted to change it up from the recordings that we've, we've all heard in the past. Hey now when whippoorwills call And evening is nigh I will hurry to my To my blue heaven It's just a turn to the right And a little white light Will lead you to my Yes, to my blue heaven You're gonna see a smiling face And a fireplace and a cozy room You'll see a little nest that is nestled where all the roses bloom It's just Molly and me And baby makes three 
We're so happy in my My blue heaven So I thought, hey man, this might sound good. It's kind of a cha-cha Latin feel. And I sat with Wes and we he played it on the piano and I sang and, and we were on to something right away. He said, he said, Joe, I got this. I'll have it done by the end of the day. He wrote this arrangement quickly and, and it's, it's, I think it's the second maybe or the third track on our on our uh, latest big band record. And it's one of the ones on iTunes that gets the most downloads. It's just a fabulous arrangement. I see that you will pay tribute to Tony Bennett with the good life as well. We sure will. We've we've uh, we've all heard. Most of us have heard of Tony Bennett's uh, struggles lately with uh, Alzheimer's disease, and and I saw him, gosh, maybe maybe just two years ago at Atlanta Symphony Hall, and he was maybe 92. I could be off by a year or so, but he was in his in his early 90s, and he did probably an hour and a half, a little longer, uh, without a break, and just tore that place to shreds. He was incredible. And I've always loved his singing and his phrasing, but when I saw that concert, I decided to put some of his music in our shows, not only to pay tribute, but also, uh, as I mentioned earlier, when you're trying to find your voice, uh, coming up with um, different ways to do these songs that your heroes did is, is always a fun way to to slide into your own sound. So um, we will definitely on May 7th, uh, pay some, some, um, maybe a couple songs as a tribute to Tony Bennett, because we, we, we love him and we, we hope he's around for a long time, but he's, he's probably one of the last connections to that era. I am struck by the fact that Tony Bennett and Sinatra were such mentors for you in that you share clarity with them. And of course you have a similar range as well, but it's it's quite the winning combination, Joe. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lois. It's a thrill to be able to, you know, recreate these songs so many years later. I'm curious about something y- you told me a while back that you were seven, eight years old when you knew that this style of music, jazz, big band, American songbook standards, that you knew this was yours. And you were never self-conscious about that. Do you find now that much younger audiences are relating to the music? I think so. I think so. Now, obviously, it's been a year since we've really done anything, but I I know that um, pre-pandemic, we had our jazz camp that we will fire up again next summer. It's called Joe's Jazz Camp, and my friend Lee Watts and I put that together. And prior to the camp, which would be in June, we would have six, maybe seven, sometimes eight months of um, shows where we would invite high school big bands high school jazz ensembles to open up for us at our at our home base, our residency at Cafe 290. And uh, they would play a half hour of music up front and then we would perform. And out of that jazz ensemble, we would, we would give some scholarships to our jazz camp. So as those months uh, progressed, we would see how in love with this music 
these these students were that were that, that played this music in these jazz ensembles. They would have their parents there and they would stay for our entire set. And this was on a Monday night and we might not finish until 11.30, 11.45 at night. And they would sit there and they would watch and they would they would want to take pictures with the band members and get their autographs. And uh, if somebody stood up and, and took a saxophone solo, John Sanford or Sam Skelton or Mace Hibbert or Mike Walton, whoever it might be, and just and just burned on something, these kids would be out of their seats uh, cheering and clapping. So it really put a smile on our face. So I, I think that uh, that is the case. I think they are relating to this music. And uh, they should. It's 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 fantastic music with great melodies, great harmonies, great rhythms. Everything is in this music that makes it wonderful. Yeah, and of course, I'm reminded that when was it? Mid '90s, late '90s. I mean, 25 now, close to maybe 30 years ago, there was a resurgence in swing dancing among college kids and and people in their 20s and you know they just couldn't get enough of it thought it was something new and how wonderful when everything old is new again for those who get to discover it joe you mentioned cafe 290 i understand they've been in dire straits what's the situation now Yes, they uh, Cafe Two Ninety, the Johnny Scatina and his team, they they have been struggling through this pandemic, like like most venues, and um, they're at the point now where it's probably not going to going to work. They are trying very hard. They've set up a GoFundMe to try and raise some money to, to pay off some bills, but they just, until recently, they just haven't been able to get people in there. You know, we we you know we weren't really weren't allowed, um, and even if they could get people in there, there wasn't enough people you weren't allowed to have enough people in there to to pay the the bills if you if you've been over to cafe 290 it's a big room it's a big it's a big club with a lot of square footage so the rent is really high so they are struggling keep them in your prayers and and uh if you feel the feel the urge you can go to gofundme.com and search cafe 290 and, and put a little something in the pot so they can they can cover some of these bills and try to keep those doors open i think it's a it's an amazing uh, legendary venue in atlanta and I think that, that guys like myself and, and guys like Marla Feeney and uh, Penelope Williams, all, all the wonderful jazz artists around town need this venue to uh, continue to create uh, this art form and bring it to the uh, Atlanta population, you know? Yeah. When you and I spoke maybe last spring when you gave us permission to use your song for our opening and closing theme, you had mentioned the number of gigs you were accustomed to playing in a year, and just in the first few months of quarantine, how that changed. Can you quantify that just to give listeners an idea of what this has meant? It really was brutal. I'm a workaholic. And, and some people say I don't even have a job because I'm always on stage performing, but it is, it is work. The behind the scenes is, is forever practicing. You have to do the booking, the, all that. So if you add all that in, it, it turns out to be a long day, but I love it. And I averaged 345 to 350 gigs every year. And I've done that for the past 10 years. Now, some of those gigs might be my two piece band. Some of them might be my five piece band. Sometimes maybe it's two in a day and then I have a day off. So, and, and then a lot was, would be with my big band. So 
2019, I think we did 350 gigs, 352 or three gigs. I remember um, after New Year's Eve, after my New Year's Eve gig, I, I got home late at night and I, I sat on the couch. My wife waited up for me and uh, I had a bottle of water with me and I just kind of fell asleep. It was just like I made it through this year. But, you know, I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I like to I like to make money. I like to perform. And then this pandemic hit. And um, I think 2020, I think I think we did maybe 30. 35 gigs, something like that. And um, they were all outside pretty much and they were all small bands. So I couldn't really pay a lot of my musicians, a lot of the guys that have been working with me for years and years and years. It was mostly just two and three and maybe a four piece band. That's why this May 7th gig is so important to us and so exciting that we're finally gonna at least attempt something, you know? Oh, I, I know that it is a joyous occasion and you're going to do an encore, not only the Friday evening concert, but something tailored for Mother's Day on Sunday. Yes, May 9th at Napoleon's. This is going to be a lot of fun. And, and uh, there's a few reasons why we did this. First of all, Mother's Day, right? How can you not do something for moms? And and then I, I hired one of my, uh, my all-time favorite singers, Robin Lattimore, to join us May 9th at Napoleon's. We're going to do it in the evening because I know a lot of people go out for Mother's Day brunch. And it is a ticketed event, but th there's limited seats. I think they're going to cap it at 80 or 90 people. And that is going to be very exciting. Napoleon's is, is becoming one of my favorite venues. It, it, it's connected to the Vista Room. And the Vista Room is where twice a year my big big band would perform. We would do Christmas. We would do Valentine's Day. We might do something in the summer. What an amazing spot. It's the same owner. Um, Sean, our good friend Sean, owns the Napoleons and the Vista Room. And the Vista Room was uh, another casualty of the pandemic. They had to shut that down. And it took away a performance venue for so many touring acts and so many local acts. It was just devastating. So he's moved it over to Napoleon's with a smaller vibe. You get a four or five or six piece band on that stage and a smaller crowd, but, but it works. So when they, they mentioned Mother's Day, I said, yeah, man, we, we have to do that. We'll get Robin, we'll get my quartet and, and we'll, we'll swing a couple sets for all the wonderful people that will come out and hear us. And that will be indoors. That one will be indoors, but spread out. Yep. Joe, congratulations on your reunion with the big band back together, the 17-piece orchestra back together after a year. And here's to a much better year, filled with as many gigs as you would like to perform. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I, I have my fingers crossed that we are on the, uh, on the right track. And Artists will be uh, back out there doing their thing very, very, very soon. There is no life that I know To compare with your imagination Living there you'll be free If you truly Jazz singer and trumpeter Joe Granston. He'll perform with his big band tomorrow and Sunday. Tomorrow's concert will be outdoors at the Oak Street Bottle Shop in Roswell. Sunday's Mother's Day concert is at Napoleon's Indicator. 
Doors open at 6 p.m. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Next Tuesday, please join us for City Lights Live, an outdoor concert at the Georgia Tech Skyline Stage. I'll host a program with musicians from ATL Collective, performing a night of blues standards from Georgia's own past and featuring Athens' own cicada rhythms. Tickets are at wabe.org. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. Help me reach that new round number, please. I'd just love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.